Um, we're going to be in the second week of our Revelation series, and if you have a Bible, I can turn to Revelation 2. And while you're looking there, just uh, can I mention the Revelation seminar? Um, you may know if you've been around the church a while that when we do these big series, we often do an evening seminar to deal with some of the tricky questions that come up in the book, um, because we can't deal with them all on a Sunday. And we're going to do that uh, just under a month's time. We're going to do that on the uh, Tuesday, the 4th of June. And in the evening, 7.45 in the evening at the Lee site. So if you are into these kinds of things, or you're just listening to this series and then thinking, oh, what? how does that square with this, and what's the deal with that weird thing that we just heard, uh, and it's not covered on Sunday, then do come to the seminar. I'll have lots of questions, opportunity for discussion. I'll do some teaching, and I hope that'll be helpful for you if that's something you'd like. So uh, that's on the 4th of June. Um, but we're going to be reading this week from Revelation 2 and 3, and you'll notice on your, the sheets you've got on your seats, we're going to be reading all of it. All of Revelation 2 and 3, which is a long reading. It'll take me nearly 10 minutes to read. So we're going to have to get comfortable before you do. Um, But I think it's good for us to hear the words of Jesus to his church. And this is a series of letters that Jesus speaks or dictates, if you like, to the churches in West Asia. So this is a map just to help us see where they are. This is what we now know as Turkey, but it wasn't called that then. Um, and, And the churches are, if you like, in an sort of an arc. So they start with Ephesus in the bottom left-hand corner of the map, and then they go up towards Pergamum, and then down again, down towards the bottom right, to Laodicea. And those seven churches, which are real congregations, are very mixed in their experience of what it is like to be the church of God. And you'll find some of them, as we're reading, you'll think, wow, this church sounds great, and sounds a bit like King's, hopefully. Um, And then there'll be others where you think, oh gosh, that doesn't sound like my experience at all. But of course, if we were to give those seven letters to our brothers and sisters in China, or in El Salvador, or in Zambia, or in wherever, they might read it quite differently. They might go, actually, that one's very like my church, and that one doesn't sound familiar. And the genius of these letters is that by writing seven letters to seven very different churches, Jesus actually addresses the whole church across time. By telling different churches with different challenges, this is what you're doing well, this is where you need challenging And this is what you can do about it. And so as we read them, it's just good to get a sense of the overall picture of what Jesus is doing. I think we can summarize the meaning of these seven letters in just one word. And it is a Greek word, and it's a Greek word that a whole bunch of you have on your clothes right now. Throw that out for you to think about and see if you can work out what that was. I'm I'm certain that there will be a number of people in this room who have this Greek word that appears in all seven of these letters written on your clothes or your socks or possibly your shoes. And it's the Greek word Nike. Uh, It means means victory. And the Greek word nikau means to conquer or to to be victorious or to overcome appears in all seven of these letters. You'll notice it as we read it. To the one who conquers or to the one who wins, the one who Nikes, if you like, the one who overcomes. And so we're going to look this morning at the victorious Christian life. The victorious Christian life. What does it look like? What does it mean to conquer in the Christian life? And you're going to find that phrase will come up again and again as we read them. So let's read Revelation 2 and 3, beginning at Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you haven't grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and aren't, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching, who haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I haven't found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you won't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know at what hour I'll come against you. 
Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who haven't soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word, and you haven't denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, but are not, lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I've loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also counted and conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Wow. Well, what does the victorious Christian life look like? Some tough words there. What is the shape of the victorious Christian life? If you were to ask a lot of people today, a lot of Christians, they might give you a very similar answer what the victorious Christian life looks like, to what it looks like to be victorious in any kind of life. They might say, well, winning in life basically means material wealth, good reputation, safety, happy children, physical health, long life, church growth maybe. But you know, it basically looks the same as it does in the world. That's what the victorious Christian life looks like, many would say. And none of those things are bad, And by the way, by the grace of God, I've been given a taste of all seven of them, and I'm so thankful. They are gifts from God. Hallelujah for those things. Praise God for health. Praise God for... It's great to receive gifts with thankfulness, but we've got to realize that they are not, according to Jesus, measures of spiritual success. They can't be. And the reason why they can't be signs of the victorious Christian life is because of these seven letters, the two letters where Jesus has nothing but praise for the church are the two letters where the church is really experiencing none of those blessings, it would seem. And the two letters where Jesus has nothing but criticism for the church are the letters where the churches look like they're doing great. Have a look at them, right? Of the two 
there were basically two churches Jesus says, this is, you are not doing well. Two churches, we said, you're doing great, keep going. And three where he's like, well, this is good and that's bad. Right? But the two where he says, this is great, well done, keep going, are the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Okay? Which are letters two and six you've got on your printout. And they are described as being troubled, poor, slandered, imprisoned, and powerless. And he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty. I know the slander. The devil's going to throw you in prison. I know. In other words, the ones with the, where the worldly appraisals of success would be awful, Jesus says, you're doing great. And the ones where the church and the world would think they're doing great, Jesus says, uh-uh, this is a huge problem and you need to deal with it right now. The two which he rebukes the most severely, Sardis and Laodicea, are the ones that look successful. But Jesus says, I know the truth. Right? So Sardis, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Who wouldn't want a reputation of being a lively church? But you're dead. The church in Laodicea, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I'm successful. And he says, no, I am at risk of spitting you out of my mouth because you are pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So Jesus' vision of success and the one that I might assume if I was simply copying the way the world thinks about things are totally different. About 10 years ago, I met two, within quite a short space of time, met two very successful, in quotes, um, church leaders, a bit big, basically a little bit older than me, both of them, but not much, um, my generation anyway, and they both led huge churches, right? Churches of 10,000 people in each case, or more. Like massive speaking ministries, good-looking, charming, funny, creative, rich, I'm sure, as a result of a lot of the stuff they'd managed to sell. You know, churches booming, massive fame and influence, I, mean, I was starstruck. I know that sounds silly to you because you're like, oh, I don't get starstruck by pastors. But in my world, that's a big thing. That's like, wow, these guys are... And I was really... I was late 20s, early 30s. I thought, wow, you guys are the big thing. And 10 years later, both of those men completely lost their churches. One of the churches disintegrated and isn't even there. The other one, the church is still there, reduced in size as far as I know, but the individual who led it has now left Christian ministry altogether, crashed out and done something totally like, I can't even do, I can't even be a pastor. I can't even do anything remotely like it. I'm going to go and do a completely different job. And as I looked at that, I just thought, wow, God's appraisals of success and mine are not the same. Because when I look, particularly in, in, in sort of youthful innocence, you look at it and think, that must be success. And then you see the long test and you think, no. And then in contrast, you notice... Well, who is the most fruitful, long-term Christian minister in the history of the Christian church? And you'd probably have to say the Apostle Paul is going to take some beating. And then you'd say, well, that guy was a single man. He was just not what most you know, big megachurch pastors look like they're going to be. He was a Pharisee, also not really. He had a very checkered past. He used to kill Christians. He had no money. He was continually being persecuted. He was thrown in jail several times. He was shipwrecked several times. And he was apparently so bad at public speaking that someone died during one of his sermons because they were so bored they fell asleep and fell out the window and died. Now, I've probably preached some duff sermons. I've never had that, to my knowledge, right? This guy doesn't measure up in any of the measures of worldly success, and yet he's got a legacy that we're all still living in the good of, while many of the people who the world would lord and hail, and I would too, actually in the long run are shown not to have the things that you'd think that Jesus seems to think are important. The victorious Christian life, in other words, does not come with worldly signs of success necessarily. It might, and if it does, praise God. 
But it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Actually, it might well come with an awful lot of worldly signs of failure. And if we're talking about Nike, victory in the Christian life, you might find the shape of the Christian life is kind of like the Nike swoosh, right? It goes down immediately. You're like, oh, that's not what I expected. But then it turns and goes up and up and up and on into eternity. And there's something of that in the shape of the victorious Christian life for us. So if that's what overcoming is not, what is it? How does Jesus talk about it in these seven letters? Well, what he does is if, if actually to the seven churches, he gives a different focus in each one. So, I, and I, I just boil them down to a single word, but I'll show you the quotes we're getting them from. But Jesus effectively identifies one thing for each church that they need to work on in that sense, and that they need to understand as what the victorious, conquering, Nike Christian life would look like for them. In the first letter, the church in Ephesus, that's simply love. Love. He said, the victorious Christian life for you, Ephesus, looks like love. He said, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do the works you did at first. I've uh, had two days where me and my wife have been able to go away without our children. And we love our children, but occasionally it's nice to just be friends and in love with each other and not just looking after children and running around the house and, and so on. And well, It was just a real blessing to have that, so thank you to mothers-in-law everywhere who make that kind of thing possible, including mine. And the interesting thing is, when you do that, if you have that, I know some of us don't, but if you have the privilege of being able to do that, what you find is you try and do the things you did at first to rekindle your first love. That's what happens sometimes. You say, actually, what did we do when we were dating? We just used to spend a lot of time just walking around, just talking about nothing, just sitting and eating things and staring at each other and laughing about the same things and sometimes just sitting there in total silence. And if you know me, that's unusual. But I do. Sometimes I'm just sitting there. I'm just sitting with Rachel for five minutes, just like, just looking around. I think this is unusual for me and that's actually often the way that we find the, the love that we used to have, feel like effectively, gets re- replenished and renewed in that context. And I think there's something of that for us to learn, even in the way Jesus, not romantically, but even in the way that Jesus wants the church to renew their first love in him. You've abandoned the love you have at first. Do the things you did in the first place. And often they are the very same things you do in a romantic relationship, actually. So spend, just spend time walking together. Spend time without an agenda with Jesus. Spend time walking with him, talking to him about what's going on, what you're thinking, what your plans are what his plans are, reading his word, just listening to him, eating and drinking with him as we're going to at the end of this meeting. Spend time with him, doing the things that you did at first and so that your first love comes back. If your first love, if you go to, actually I'm with a kind of church or the kind of Christians who we overcome and we persevere and we pursue all of these things and we're really good on doctrine and lifestyle and everything, but you don't love Jesus, you've lost the farm. Jesus says, come on. I don't think it's unimportant that the very first letter says you've got to have love for Jesus at the start, at the heart of your Christian life. Overcoming looks like love. Second letter, overcoming looks like death. The church in Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Now this one doesn't get so many, ooh yes, that sounds great in most churches, but it's an integral part of the witness of Revelation. Revelation is about martyrs almost as much as it's about anything else. It's about how the church suffers in the face of opposition. And we'll see a lot more about martyrs as we go through the rest of the book, but this is the first mention of them. People are going to be killed for this. I just heard the statistical analysis a few days ago 
that on average through Christian history, one in 120 Christians has been killed for their faith. Right? So that's two or three of us. Now, of course, in practice, it probably won't be two or three of us. It'll probably be none of us, and you never know, but two or three brothers and sisters in another part of the world. But that's the, that's the reality. If we were the global church, two or three of us would get killed for their faith. And you think, wow, that's something for which I need to be prepared, even theologically, spiritually, to understand that may well be what it costs me. And even if it doesn't, the Christian life begins with a death, which is why there's a baptism pool under this little bit of stage right here. Because we begin by recognizing this life is no longer yours. It belongs to him, and that means that you start with a death. Be faithful unto death. That's what overcoming looks like. Some, For many people, the most victorious thing they will do is to die in faith. Third letter, overcoming looks like repentance. A victorious Christian life looks like a life of repentance. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. And repentance is not only something you just do once in the Christian life. It's not, well, we have repented in the past, so we don't need to do it anymore. Repentance is something that Christians are called to do again and again. Not in a guilt-laden, I'm awful way, just in a continually. Repenting just means turning around. Yeah? So when I first went to follow Jesus, I stopped going that way and I went this way. But actually what happens is my sinful heart leads me off over there. Oh, no, I need to go back on track. No, I need to go back. I need to turn around again. Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation by nailing a list of statements to a church door in Germany. And the very first one was, the Lord Jesus Christ meant that the entire Christian life should be one of repentance. It's not a one-off moment. It's a continual turning around. As if you're being followed by Bonnie Tyler everywhere you go. She's going, turn around. You go, okay, I thought I already had, but okay. I'll turn back every now and then. Turn around. You think, okay, I better stop. Okay, I've not lost my focus on Jesus. Turn around, bright eyes. And over and over. If you don't know that song, then I'm sorry, that will seem a little surreal. But if you have heard Total Eclipse of the Heart, it's like that sense of continual turning around. I know you're heading this way. I know you've turned once, but you need to keep turning around, turn around, and follow Jesus over and over again because you'll find otherwise little bits of sin little bits of bad thinking little bits of whatever will get into your life and eat away at your fruitfulness and your victory you need to keep turning around and restoring your focus and your allegiance to him fourth letter overcoming looks like intolerance and that is a word that most people in contemporary britain would say was a bad thing and it can be certainly when it's of people if you like of just people generally in, in society but When it's used of things that are coming in to attack and destroy the church, it's a different story. This is what he says to them. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who he immediately says is a a pseudo-prophet who is leading them into sexual sin, idolatry, and what Jesus calls the deep things of Satan. Now, I don't know what what that is, but that sounds bad. Jesus says that's what is going on in the church. He said, the problem with you guys is you're doing well in many ways, but you are tolerating someone and a teaching that is going to come in and destroy the whole church if you're not careful. And actually, you need, in order to be victorious, you need to be intolerant of the evil that is at risk of taking out the church. And you know what? Love is always going to require intolerance somewhere, right? If I love sheep, I'm going to be intolerant of wolves. If I love bread, I'm going to be intolerant of mold. If I love you, I'm going to be intolerant of cancer or of gangrene or of anything that could spread and take you out. And the Lord Jesus says to his church, one of these seven churches, your problem is you have been too tolerant. You need to be intolerant and conquer by removing that spreading teaching from within your midst. 
Well, the fifth church, overcoming looks like wakefulness, being awake, right? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. If you won't wake up, I will come like a thief, right? Jesus is wanting the church to be wide awake, to be aware. This is a church that's got dozy. You know, Christians like that, church is like, oh, oh, I can't read that can't read. People who just don't seem aware of spiritual realities, don't seem to be mindful of the fact that there are threats and perils and dangers, and don't seem to be aware that there is an urgency to the calling they've received. They're just sort of bumbling through life, dozy, complacent, half asleep, unaware, dead. Conquerors are people who are aware of spiritual realities. I had lunch with one last week, a friend of mine. I just, we just had lunch together, just chatting about stuff. No, no particular agenda, but as I'm spending time with them, I'm thinking, you are very aware of spiritual realities. You seem like an awake person to me. And I find it refreshing when you, there's a lot of us in this room like that, where I spend time with you and I think, yeah, you are an awake, I can see people now who I know, I think, this person keeps me awake because they are awake. They often just see, they recognize, they are aware of the spiritual dynamics at work in the world. And they make decisions on that basis. They think, I know what the devil is up to. I know what God is up to. I know how the story ends. And I'm going to make decisions in that light because I'm awake. That's what overcoming looks like. And the sixth letter, overcoming looks like endurance. I'm coming soon. I mean, this, this is the church, one of the churches. He just says nothing but praise. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. Right? You guys are doing so well. Just keep going. Like the marathon runners at mile 17, right? Plodding like this. And then they have to turn right into the Isle of Dogs. Oh, no, I'm going the wrong way. I want to go that way, but they're going this way. It's like, okay, just keep going. That's all you can do. you just got to keep going. Some of you, you've been running the Christian life a long time. And overcoming for you just looks like you're still here this time next year. Well, actually, God would, say, God would say to you today, well done. You are overcoming because you're still here now. And this time last year, that's what it would have looked like for you to still be here today. And you are. Some of you, you haven't been running very long, but the start of your Christian life has been running uphill. Yes, yeah, I am very tired, even though I've only been going for a short while. I need endurance. And Jesus says, yes, overcoming for you simply looks like you're still here. Well done. Hold fast. Don't let anybody take away that crown. Just keep going, one foot in front of the other. A, the Christian life, when it's lived victoriously, looks like a long obedience in the same direction. It just looks like, I'm still going. And then in the seventh letter, overcoming looks like zeal. It looks like zeal. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Right? A hot meal, brilliant. A cold meal, less good, but nice. A lukewarm school dinner that looks like it's going to be hot but is actually not tastes like bowels, right? Worst thing in the world, isn't it? You eat something and you think, I was expecting it to be, ah, it's flabby and warm and insipid and ugh. Right? Hot coffee, nice. Cold beer, nice. Cider at room temperature, spawn of Satan, right? That's, that's the, what we're talking about. Just diabolical. And Jesus is using visceral images because he knows we'll go, ugh, lukewarm is a horrible thing. We all know that. And almost in every culture, people know lukewarm is generally not the way you're supposed to do things. Jesus doesn't want his people to look like they're hot, but actually be, Ugh. in fact, he'd almost rather people were cold than look like they were hot and be something else. 
What he wants is his people to be fiery, to be hot, zealous, passionate, all-in, committed people. And by the way, that doesn't mean being shouty. I know I'm being shouty, but that doesn't mean being loud. That means being committed. It means being sacrificial. It means being all-in, not being half-in, half-out, tepid, nominal, compromised, room-temperature Christians. Jesus does not want disciples served at room temperature. The victorious Christian life is a life of zeal, of commitment, of sacrifice and fire. Be zealous and repent, he says. Now that's a challenging list. Right? That's a challenging seven things, isn't it? You, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his church and he's giving challenges to each one, even if those challenges are keep going as you were. They're still challenges. The victorious Christian life is not lived through anything so easy as health or reputation or influence or money or anything like that. Those things are too easy. Jesus could give those to everybody in the church worldwide now, instantly. But the victorious Christian life is not lived that way. It might include those things as gifts, but that's not how it's run. The victorious Christian life is lived through love and death and repentance and intolerance and wakefulness and endurance and zeal. And it's costly. And some of us may not be used to hearing Jesus talk like this. Although if you read the Gospels, you'll see he talks about all seven of those things in the Gospels as well. But, there are two, but it is challenging for us, and we need to recognize that. And then notice that there are two massive sources of encouragement that Jesus gives us in these letters to sustain us when we face up to that challenge. The first is that every letter concludes with a massive promise for those who overcome, for Nikes, for conquerors, for winners, right? Massive. Each letter ends, the one who conquers will receive, bang. The, one, right? the first letter, you will eat from the tree of life. Conquerors, that's you, right? Living the enduring Christian life. You may not say, oh, I'm not perfect. No, but are you daily repenting? Are you daily just keeping going? Are you living that? Are you awake? One of those lives, great. You will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Second letter, you will not be hurt by the second death. Third letter, you will receive the hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And you say, what on earth is that? And I say, I don't know, but sounds good. Right? Fourth letter, you will have authority over the nations. Fifth letter, you will be clothed in white garments and never blotted out of the book of life. Sixth letter, you will be pillars in the temple of God. And seventh letter, you will sit with Jesus on his throne. That is an amazing set of promises to sustain and strengthen those of us who are saying, do you know what, right now, I'm one foot in front of the other, and this is challenging. And Jesus knows. You notice every one of those letters at some point he says, I know. Right? He knows. But he says, keep going. And he says, be zealous. And that is an amazing set of promises for those who overcome. That's one huge source of encouragement we have. You know what the second one is? The second one comes... As Jesus has finished his fiercest comments in his fiercest letter. Right? The final letter to the Laodiceans is hard to hear. Spitting out of the mouth. What is going on there? But listen to what Jesus immediately afterwards says. He says, Would that you were either hot or cold, because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And then he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I am only talking to you like this, Laodiceans, because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be writing this letter. If I didn't love you, I'd just say, Holy Spirit, we don't need to bother with them anymore. They're done. But I don't want to do that. I want to win you back. I want to get that fire back in your lives. And so I've written to you to call you because I love you. Please would you respond. My love for you is hot. 
And that's why I want you to be hot. I don't want to, I'm not a lukewarm savior. And so I don't want a lukewarm bride either. I want you to be as zealous for me as I am zealous for you. And I'm so zealous for you that I died for you. So please, would you respond with a similar zeal for me? And I will give you that. I'm, I'm standing outside the door knocking day and night, waiting for the moment when you say, do you know, I do want to have zeal for God and I'm going to open that door. And as soon as you do that, church, I'm straight in there. I can't, I'm like, I've missed you so much. I've so enjoyed being with you. I love to be with you again. Now let's sit down, let's eat and drink and celebrate victory together. That's exactly what we're going to do as we conclude this meeting. We're going to eat and drink with Jesus. We're going to open the door in that sense. So yeah, we want to be a church like that. We want to open the door to have Jesus eat with us and drink with us and allow him to be victorious in our midst and to be caught up once again into living a victorious Christian life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the glories of Jesus. We thank you so much for his victory. Thank you that his victory doesn't depend on ours, but that ours depends on his and that We pray that you would make us not just individuals, but actually a church that is daily, weekly, monthly living the victorious Christian life, living lives of, yeah, repentance and joy and wakefulness and zeal. Lord, we ask for that kind of power daily. We ask that you would help us make decisions that are going to lead that way. And we ask for your spirit to come and strengthen us and enable us as we do. And we pray that even now, as we come and eat and drink with you, you would feed us with all the resources we need to conquer in Jesus' name. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.